Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. It is January 5th, 2023, and my guest is poet and lawyer Dwayne Betts. He is the creator of the Freedom Reads Project, an initiative to install curated micro-libraries of 500 books in prisons across the country, a project we spoke about on his first appearance. This is his third appearance on Econ Talk. Dwayne was last here in May of 2022 discussing Ralph Ellison and Primo Levi. I want to encourage listeners to go to econtalk.org, where you'll find a link to our survey of your favorite episodes of last year. Dwayne, welcome back to Econ Talk. I know it's always a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm chasing Mike Munger. You're close. Well, with this third episode, you know, you're on your way. Uh, I lose track. I think Mike's in his 40s, but, you know, just a few more dozen, a couple dozen, well, three dozen, more, well, more than that. But you, I'm not. I, I would I would never underestimate you, Dwayne. All things are possible. So so we have three topics today. Uh, we're going to talk about, if we get to them, we'll see. We're going to talk about beauty in prison, uh, which is a bit of, uh, to many, would be an oxymoron. Uh, we're going to talk about what's happening with your library project. And then we're going to talk about your latest book, which is quite unusual in many dimensions. That book is Redaction, is the name of it. Let's start with beauty. Now, you recently wrote about beauty in prison in a piece uh, in the New York Times. It, it opens this way, quote, The first morning I woke up in a cell, I was 16 years old and had braces and colorful bands covering my teeth. My voice cracked when I spoke. I was five foot five and barely weighed more than a sack of potatoes. Before my 18th birthday, I'd scuffle in prison cells, be counseled to stab a man. I declined and get tossed into solitary confinement five times. And still, of those years, the memory that endures is the moment a prisoner whose name I've never known slid Dudley Randall's The Black Poets under my cell door in the hole. End of quote. So, for listeners who didn't hear your first appearance, and of course we'll link to it, uh, how'd you get to prison at 16, and how did that book that was slid under your door by a stranger who you've never known now and never met how to change your life. Yeah, you know, one of the things I find um I find challenging is is as you know, as you get older, um some of the excuses you make for um your younger self start to wane just because like all of a sudden you're in contact with people who who you think, you know, could be you, right? It's almost like you you meet yourself constantly and you know, when I was 20, that wasn't the case because when I would, you know, meet a 16-year-old, they they felt like me. And even when I was 25 and when I was 30, um, but now that I'm 42 and that I got a 15-year-old, um, that question, how did you end up in prison at 16, is one that um, that I find baffling, you know, because I realized that the answers that I thought made sense no longer make sense. Um, but, but the short of it is that um, I carjacked somebody, and it was December 7th, 1986. Um, 1996, 
And then um, the next day we we got arrested uh, driving. Well, actually, we got arrested at a mall. We were um, shopping with a credit card that didn't belong to us. And um, that's the short answer is that I carjacked somebody. I got caught. Uh, you know, one of the funny things about um, that people don't realize, you know, they think that 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 you're just wild and, and you run in the streets. I mean, the first thing I did was confess. Uh, and, and it wasn't the pressure of having police pointing pistols at me. I think it was that um, I was living in a place where I expected to go to college, wanted to go to college, but it was just much easier to engage in the violence that was around me than, than to avoid it. And it was much easier to imagine that I, I could have a foothold in that world, even if just momentary. Um, didn't, didn't recognize that that thing would change the way I saw myself and the way others saw me for the rest of my life. And so um, I confessed immediately, uh, you know, didn't even know how much time I would get. Uh, I just confessed so that they would drop some of the charges. And I stood in front of a judge, 16 years old, facing life in prison because um, carjacking carries life in Virginia. And uh, <laughs> I remember I remember sitting on the um, sitting in my chair and my family got up, a couple people in my family, um, a couple family friends. Um, they explained how I called Jack the man because I didn't have a father. And uh and my mom, she she didn't she didn't get up and testify on my behalf, but she was in the room. And I just, you know, I remember thinking, man, nobody told me that not having a father doomed me from the from the jump. And so when the judge asked me what I wanted to say, um I remember saying I, I apologize to the victim and I apologize to my mom, you know, and to my family. And and all I know is I didn't do it because I didn't have a father. But the, the wild thing, and, and this is what I've, I've, I've really got no further to truly being able to answer is, is I didn't provide the judge for a reason why I did it. I just I just knew why I just knew what wasn't the rationale, you know. And um, and anyway, I, I went to prison and. And it's so interesting because it's the most humbling thing in my life. I thought I was so much better than, than so many people, you know, my peers, because I was getting good grades, but I was trying. Um, I, I thought they were on a path to perdition. I ended up in prison before all of them. And and it's something that's really humbling when 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 you get into a place like that and you recognize like that this is your community. And, and you got to figure out, man, um, you know, if you hate them, you hate yourself. And so with some torturous I think about being a 16 year old in this this godforsaken place and trying to find meaning and that's why the books became so so invaluable you know um but yeah that's how it happened that book sliding along the floor that went into your cell door how long were you had you been there before that happened do you remember Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. That's one of those things that um, is unforgettable in the sense that, like, I have been reading books all of the time. You know, we all have origin stories, and, and I have different origin stories, too. I, I should say, like, one of the first ones was, you know, I when I was, um, yeah, I got locked up when I was 16 in my 11th grade year. When I was in the 10th grade, one of my, my history teacher um, caught me reading in the classroom, you know, and I was reading, um, <laughs> I was reading Sherlock Holmes. You know, I had it under my desk. And he came back and busted me. And um, and I thought he would take my book and yell. And he just said um, something like to the effect of that's a good book. <laughs> and so so what happens is I walk up to him and he and, and um, afterwards and he's reading a philosophy book and he lets me borrow it. And I remember like being 
deeply, deeply enthralled in his work of, of philosophy is asking these questions like, how do you know you exist? And I was I was captured by it. Right. And he let me borrow it. And he did two things. He, he one, he introduced me to this book called um, called um, Sophie's World. And it was like this 1500 word um, book. It was this young girl who, who who ended up meeting like all of the great philosophers. Right. And it was an intro to philosophy book. Um, but I hadn't got my hands on it. And the second thing he did was he he um, he he was trying to organize a trip to the Holocaust Museum for the whole class um, that the school wouldn't permit it. So then he told us, you know, if you want to come in the summer, you know, if you meet me there, I can get you a private tour. Now, this is like five months before I go to prison, before I carjack a man, you know, before I get nine years in prison. That summer, I go to the Holocaust Museum with this with this teacher, and um, and it's my first experience with with really with understanding what the Holocaust is, but even thinking about what it means to be Jewish as like an idea, as a notion, right? So I get locked up, and and I'm trying to find a way back, right? And I got this teacher that's telling me I can help you get your high school diploma, and and essentially what my my course of study became with her was. You know, look, you have enough credits to graduate right now. All you need to do is finish 11th grade and take 12th grade English. So I did all of my classes at the county jail, and then she gave me 12th grade English. And what 12th grade English consisted of is reading everything. You know, I'm reading King Arthur. I'm reading Ernest Gaines. I'm reading anything that I want to read and anything that she tells me to read. And she says, what do you want to read? And I said, you know, I want to read this book, Sophie's World. I think about this teacher. And I said, I want to read Sophie's World. And so she's like, okay, I'm going to get you Sophie's World. She comes back like, you know, a week later and she says, I think you're mistaken um, because I was looking for it and I can't find a book called Sophie's World. I think you want to read Sophie's Choice. Not the same and book. She, <laughs> and, and, you know, and I'm like 16 and it's like, woe is me. And then I read Sophie's Choice and my world is blown. And, and I go from from Sophie's Choice to the confessions of that turning. And, and so in my own head, you know, I, I tell this origin story about becoming a poet. But I think the, the reality is even before I had became a poet, something else had to happen, which is I had to get exposed to literature that let me have some sensitivity um, to understanding that it's not just what was me. So this is 1996. It's 1998 when I ended up. Um, so I read Sophie's World. I read Sophie's Choice in 1996. It's 1998 when I'm at the first prison that I'm at. You know, I've been sentenced. Um, I've been transferred downstate to the prison. And um, and something happened on the yard and I ended up getting put in solitary confinement. And it was the summer of 1998. Um, Books were contraband, so they took all of my books and and they didn't let anybody really have books back then. But you would hear guys on the door asking for books. And then people would slide them books and it was just like an underground library. If if somebody had a book and you asked for one, they would give it to you. And and they wouldn't ask you what you wanted. You know what I mean? So I read like so many Reader's Digest books. Um, But I remember I was like, yo, somebody send me a book and and then, you know, this poetry book, Dudley Randall's The Black Poets, slides out of my cell. And, but the truth is, though, you know, and, and at first I was like, what am I going to do with this? Mm, read poetry at, you know, I'm 16, 17 years old. I'm in solitary confinement. Um, what is a poem going to do for me? But I, I discovered, you know, Robert Hayden, uh, Claude McKay, Lucille Clifton, Sonia Sanchez, like so many fascinating writers. But the thing that really turned me into a poet was I, I discovered Etheridge Knight. And he had this poem in there called um, For Freckle Face Gerald. And, and and one of the lines was, 16 years hadn't done a good job on my voice. And I'm a kid when I'm reading it. And and, and I said, um, with his precise speech and innocent grin, he couldn't quite win the trust or the fists of the black cats around him. 
And um, and it's this poem about a 16 year old kid who ends up getting raped in prison. And um, and the poem was written in the seventies. And so I was thinking like, what was me? You know, I'm 16, 17 years old. I'm in prison. And it's a whole cohort of us. And I'm thinking, this is the first time this has ever happened in the world. I can't believe this is going on. And then I read this poem that's about somebody who could have been me um, in the 70s. And and I just thought, wow, a poem could be history. It could be psychology. Um, and also, I read it, and it made me grateful for the life that I had, which is, you know, you're grateful for anything in prison. But... Um, but I didn't really have precise speech. I didn't have an innocent grin and people loved me even in prison. And and even in the hole, I knew like, and I was, I was not a tough guy. You know, I was in a hole. <laughs> I mean, I was probably in a hole because somebody had like swung on me and, and I never, you know, I didn't really retaliate, you know? So it's not like I was a tough guy, but I read that poem and I knew um, the thing that the poet did was, was, was capture a story that the person who experienced it couldn't, because the personal experience that might not have survived. And at that moment, I was like, you know, this is the thing I want to be. This is the thing I want to do. And, um, and it's really strange to, to, to commit to doing something or being something when you're so young. Um, but, you know, I did. And, and, and all these years later, I committed to being two things, actually. You know, I committed to being a criminal, too, not understanding the decision I was making. And then to be able to commit to being something else and, and had that other thing last longer than the first thing is, is still something that's pretty humbling to me. And it's amazing. Um, so, in this piece uh, for the Times, and unintentionally or not, in your what you just said, trying to make a life. You're in prison, but you still make a life. We don't. I think those of us who have not had to deal with that kind of thing just have a very flat stereotype view of what it means to be in that situation, not just in prison, but being convicted of a crime and having an identity suddenly thrust on you or chosen by you that is a unbearable surprise. And yet there's other stuff going on there. Uh, it's, um, it's not as flat as it looks. You, um, you write later in that piece, talking about Riker's, President Rikers Island, quote, the conversations about places like Rikers are usually limited to the violence that takes place there as if prison, like the streets we walk each day, isn't filled mostly with people attempting to get by, people who reach for beauty in every way they can. During my time in prison, I got into a single real fight. People don't understand how many of us sought to become more than our crimes or how many of us starved for lack of a conduit to the dignity that we sought, end of quote. So what does that mean when you reflect on your own experience and then on your experience of going back into prisons recently with books? And we'll talk about that in more detail. But what does it mean to reach for beauty? Can you, can you appreciate that when you're there? Yeah, you know, is one thing that's really interesting, actually, is, is one of my friends criticized my first book. And he said, yeah, I read it. You know, I read it in a couple of days. And he said, you know, but what got me is uh, this, ain't the, uh, this ain't ours. And he was like, prison ain't just ours. Now, I read my first book. I mean, I wrote it. And I tried really hard not to make the book ours, right? But a good friend of mine who had been sentenced to life in prison, you know, his critique was you didn't capture the, the substance of everything else that's going on here. 
And, but Oz, and you know, Oz, Oz meaning, Oz meaning just a horrific hellhole. Oh, oh yeah. Oz meaning like the, the, well, the, you know, it's, 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 it's these certain narratives about prison that persist. And, and Oz was a television show that was about um, life in jail. And I'm sure Oz contained more in it than just the horror. But what people know from Oz is sort of the horror. And so the question for him was, as a writer, you know, how complex do you make this portrait and every decision you make is a choice. And I don't think in the first book I wrote about what it means to reach for beauty. And, and I, but I do think it exists in prison and it exists in a lot of ways. You know, you see a bunch of grown men playing. They, they didn't really let us play football in Virginia. But, you know, around Thanksgiving, I remember it was just one Thanksgiving, snow on the ground and they let us play football. And, you know, you see a bunch of grown men running around um, playing football uh, and, and of all ages, you know, I mean, it's something that's that's joyful and and, and, it's, and people trying to recapture their youth. Um, you see people um, playing basketball, but you see people actually like like I remember walking into a, a, a prison and, and, and this and my cell partner was uh, 56 years old. And um, and I was in my 20s. So so that means that now he's probably in his 80s, you know, but he was crying at a table and it was a circle of men around him. And I just thought something's gone profoundly wrong to, to, to for this guy who's been locked up for 25 years to be crying in public. And um, he had made parole. And, and and nobody made parole during that time. And he was crying and his friends were around him. And so, I, you know, I, I, I think that it's complicated because to, to say something like, is there beauty in prison is, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's like, like we started this conversation with in a way, it's like an oxymoron, right? But, um, but there is sometimes beauty. I mean, I remember the first dude that defended me, um, you know, it was this Alvasorian, El Salvadorian um, guy, you know, with tattoos all over his body. And he used to draw roses on an envelope uh, with an ink pen and, and, and get this astonishing depth of detail and shading just by using an ink pen. So I, I do think it's beauty in prison. And I think, um, you know, you don't want to like trivialize the experience and act like it's just this one thing. But in, 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 in trying to trying to really engage the world to say how horrific it is. It's very easy to forget that there are these moments um, of beauty, and it's easy to forget that you know, in all of the language and the work around criminal justice reform, the thing that people don't really do a lot is we'll, we'll say, "What does it mean to actually fundamentally and radically change the lived experience of people inside?" To say, like, like that's the thing I'm doing. You know, I might not get you out of prison. You know, I might not release, not shorten your sentence. I'm not even advocating for for, for criminal justice reform. And in, in my current work, what I'm saying is that you need another, you know, you need a, a, another iota of beauty in your life. And, and the vehicle for that literally um, can be a book, because I think the other moments of beauty I had, it's like when somebody slid that book under my cell. You know, it's these conversations around literature I had. And, and, and I mean, I remember a guy called me once. I'm I'm doing a reading in upstate New York. And I was like, I was like, oh, I'm going to answer this because this is my friend calling me from prison. And I try to answer anytime somebody calls me, which is like the most disrespectful thing you could do ever to an audience. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, look, man, I'm doing this poetry. I'm like, you know what? You want to listen in? And I, I put him on speaker so that he could hear me. And, and he, he, he hears, you know, he has the audience laughing. Somebody in the audience says, says hi to him, you know, and, and like, I mean, I, I think that's. That's a moment of beauty. That's a moment of richness. That's an opportunity to be um, more connected to the world. And, and so I, I do think it's beauty in prison. I think that um, it's not enough. And, and I think that we should push 
Um, because if we push to make it more, I think we remind ourselves of, of, of who we are and, and, and we give ourselves the opportunity to, um, to, to revisit that, 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 that idea of who we want to be um, instead of being stuck, you know, in, um, in the circumstances, so to speak. Um, and I want to trivialize the challenge of being a prisoner, but of course, all of us have this challenge of remembering that there's beauty in the world. Very easy to go through life, just missing it. Um, it is everywhere. You just have to pay attention, and paying attention is really hard. Uh, I don't know why it's so hard. What well, it shouldn't be. Um, you know, there's some places that are physically more aesthetic than others. There are some places that offer more glimpses of the transcendent uh, and the awesome than others, but. Almost every place has beauty in it in some fashion. And I think of the, uh, what you said reminds me of Emily Dickinson. I think I have this right. My heart stirred for a bird. The idea that, you know, I just, I want, I yearn to see something magical, beautiful, transcendent, awe-filled. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a under experience part of the human experience and i think it's just because we don't pay enough attention yeah i remember uh i mean i remember once i i had a bit of a charm life in some ways and and you got but everybody has and it's that, that thing about paying attention i was just trying to teach my son this notion of paying attention and but but like even the phrase you know to pay attention like what is it what is the the the, the sort of the the that vehicle that you have to give the world what is what is the the money that you have to give the world and it's just your attention. And so what does it mean to pay attention to something and how it is remarkably so much of a choice. And I remember I was in this, this cell at a juvenile detention center before they sent me to, to the adult jail and, and later to prison. I would um, sneak a book into my cell at night and read it. And I got all caught up in like, you know, like the Jonathan Livingston Seagull books. And so um, I had them in my cell and, and my aunt would send me some and she sent me one of her books and, and the guard, he, he walked past and he saw me reading and he chastised me. He just worked a night shift. But then when he opened the door to take my book, he saw what I was reading. And I guess he had read similar books. And he was into the books. And so now I had I had a, a, a friend, you know, he let me keep the book. And then he would I would read and I would fall asleep when I read. And so he would wake me up before shift changed and, and, um, and, and, and get the book from me and put it back so that I wouldn't get in trouble. And I remember once he, he gave me the book that I had in my locker and I'm reading it. And, and I turn the page, I get to the middle, and I swear a dozen fully flowers fell out of the book. You know, because um, my aunt, she, she had taught me how to find fully flowers. I, I search for fully flowers to this day, you know, when, I, when I'm walking. I find them pretty consistently, but she would find them and put them in books, and I do the same thing. But I open this book, and like a dozen fully flowers um, fall out. And, and, and what that reminds me of is it's always that, like, the, the searching for fully flowers is a decision for her to pay attention. And then, you know, putting it in a book and a story in a book and then later to get a book to me. And it was all happenstance. She probably had no clue that, you know, those 40 flowers were in that book because, you know, she had that book 10 years, 15 years before she, she gave it to me. Um, so anyway, I do think that you, what you do is you wait for moments like that. And, um, and you get to choose. What, what moments you imagine are remarkable. I, I think a lot of times we, we forget that, that we get to choose. And it might be 
Um, you know, some people might think the 40 Club was a tribute. And I know because they looked at me sometimes when I'm on the corner sitting down and like, you know, walking my dog and I look and find a 40 Clover. They'd be like, what, what, you know, what are you doing? I'm like, well, we're looking for 40 Clover. But for others, it's, it's a moment of, um, of beauty and it captures something that, that matters, you know. Yeah, you're also looking for your aunt, which is pretty beautiful that you can find her on a street corner in Connecticut somewhere. Yeah. It's pretty sweet. So the literal sense in which you are trying to bring beauty, beauty into prisons with the Freedom Reads Project. And so, you know, when I think of it, you know, here at Shalem College, we, we do a, it's a little like what your project is, not quite the same, but there's a a trail like the Appalachian Trail here in Israel. It's called Shvil Yisrael. It's the Israeli Israel Trail. And you can go from the full north and south of the country on this trail. And Shalem College I'm president of, before I got here, I, was, I love this decision. I had nothing to do with it, but I love it. We put out boxes of books on the trail, scattered it along the trail, and and you can go there and pick up a book. It's often a book that maybe always, I don't even remember, but that we've published in in our press. And um, you know, I'm sure people are walking along and thinking, what's that box? And they go and look at it, and they go like, oh my gosh, it's got books in it. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, and you're bringing books, you know, into a different kind of wilderness, different kind of desert, different kind of trail. But the part I wanted to emphasize is that you made a decision to make the bookcases that house those books beautiful. You know, you didn't just say, well, we'll put a bookcase in a library and we'll have 500 or two bookcases, they'll hold 500 books. You, you designed somebody designed a gorgeous curved wooden bookcase. We'll put links to the project online, of course, to this episode. You can go look at it yourself, listeners, but you made they're beautiful. They're really beautiful. Um, they're not practical for me because they, they're not flush to the wall because they're curved, but they're perfect for prison. So talk about that decision and, and why you did that. You know, it really was iterative. You know, somebody said, um, basically somebody said to me, what would you do, you know, in this world if you if you could have a bigger impact and, and it wasn't about money? And I, I thought, well, I would put, you know, we put millions of people in prison. I would put a million books in prison. And I thought about the, the books. I thought about the, 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 the like, the, the, the prison is like a glass, you know, and the people are like water. And I thought of the books like ice cubes. And, and, and if you add enough ice cubes to a glass of water, the water overflows, you know, and I thought that that if you add enough books to prison, um, that we might conceptualize um, what we do to each other on both ends too. You know, it's both ends of the spectrum. I think um, people in prison understand harm and violence as, as much as anybody else. I think, um, you know, it's not just say that the, the world is unjust; it's to say that the world is unjust in really profoundly complicated ways. And, and in some ways, what we do with prisons is, 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 is allow ourselves to ignore the injustice. And I just thought the idea of books and bringing more and more books into prison would profoundly alter the way we saw the space and the way people inside saw the space. I thought a lot of things were happening. So then I was like, okay, well, how will you do this? You know, will you just do a bookshelf? And I was thinking it was going to be a 500 book collection. Um, Sir Walter Riley had 500 books when, when he was at the, um, you know, Tower of London. And I thought like 500 books is, is, is a sufficient number of books to like 
you know, especially if they're great books, if they if they have weight to them, it's a sufficient number of books to carry you through a stretch of time. And I also thought it was I'm I'm, I'm pretty well read, but I have huge gaps um, just based on not having the opportunity to to read some books when I had the time. And I thought, yo, you know, prison is a lot of time. Um, and I also thought that books fundamentally are, are just so much better um, at changing people's minds and the way they see the world than arguments. And so it was like, what kind of books? And it was mostly fiction and poetry, you know, some philosophy and some nonfiction, but mostly fiction and poetry, because I think a novel, I think, you know, for me, like reading, reading Sophie's Choice made me much better understand like would have meant to carry the experience of the Holocaust around than, than read some nonfiction would have. I think reading, um, and you, you know, we could all go down the list. But then the question was, okay, so you're going to put the books in, how will you? And at first I was going to do a bookshelf, like a case that's on the wall, um, on your wall behind you. And then I thought, well, but that's taking up so much space. You know, people in prison, they're they doing push-ups on the wall. So the, the wall is like valuable space. They leaning against the wall to talk. Um, and then, the thing is, if you go to your bookshelf, you know, you exist at your bookshelf and it's you communing with the books, right? It's not a it's not a community that gets built from that experience. Maybe one person stands beside you, but but y'all shoulder to shoulder. Y'all not looking at each other in the face. And again, it's it's just like two people that get to take up all of that space. Um, so I thought, OK, I, I don't want it up against the wall. So then decide not to have it up against the wall. I had to deal with with prison. I had to deal with um, blind spots. Uh, the Prison Rape Elimination Act and the fact that you can't obscure sight lines. And so that led me to think, okay, well, now it has to be 44 inches high. And I thought, well, what if, and, and I'm working with Mass Design um, at the time, the, the the architecture and design firm that, you know, built Brian Stevenson's memorial that's built hospitals around the world um, and doing a, 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 one of these silent gardens at Gallaudet. Uh, they do some some interesting things. That, and I was working with this guy named Jeffrey, this architect there, and, and we settled on like, you know, 44 inches high and, and, and thinking to make it curved, riff it on Martin Luther King's, you know, the, the arc of the universe bands towards justice. And, um, but the thing is, by doing it that way, one, we could maximize the number of books we could get in a small space because we could make the book, the books accessible on two sides. Um, but also by making it curved, um, the typical library has three book, bookshelves and, and around three bookshelves that's curved 44 inches high six to seven people could just browse at one time. And what happens is when, you, when you're looking at those books, you're not just looking at the books, you're looking at the person across from you. And it literally creates a space. And, and then the question was, well, what would the material be? And, and I, I got really obsessed with material. I was like, well, we're going to make it out of wood. We're going to make it out of hardwood. We're going to use like maple and walnut and, and oak and cherry. And, and the reason was because the, the wood lasts forever. And it's beautiful. And you go into a prison and it's just straight lines and right angles and it's just like steel and concrete and um and, and 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 like plastics, right? And so I was like, we're going to use a wood, something that, that you know. Every time I see one, I, I put my hand on it, I touch it because it is it's, it's life that's coming out of it. And and a lot of people argue with me and say, well, I mean, why don't you just get IKEA bookshelves? You know, if you got IKEA bookshelves, then then you could do this thing. And I was like, well, you know, if we got IKEA bookshelves, um, one, the prison won't permit the IKEA bookshelf, frankly, because it's, that's usually made by veneer. And, um, and, and the, the shelves are really, really thin and they can become weapons. Um, but two, it'll miss the depth of beauty, you know, and, and then it actually missed the process that goes into the construction. And so at this point, um, the, the production of one of these is, is a journey for everybody involved. You know, it's this transformation of the wood. It's the, the labor of people's hands who are literally um, crafting these things that are beauty. And, you know, 
Um, I was thinking about that that biblical story um, where was like somebody washes his. Um, I can't even remember the story because I don't. Um, you know, um, I, I know the story actually. I think it's it's, it's a, a woman is uh, like washing Jesus's feet with her hair or something. You know, and um, and I forgot what they said the story meant. What it was supposed to mean, but what I think about it is just like who is to say who is worthy of a beautiful thing. You know, who gets to, to decide that question? And when you, anybody who's engaged with this project, you know, when you're working on it, you're building it. I mean, this is the most beautiful thing that is in the house of most people that I know. You know, nobody has something that's this beautiful. So when you work on it, you know that your design is something that, that has the kind of attention to detail, the kind of care and the kind of cost that exceeds what a lot of us are capable of bringing to our home. And Frankly, none of us will bring this into our home because it is not efficient, you know? And so you work on this thing and you know that it's something that's profoundly beautiful. And it's always, it forces you to ask, so does this person deserve this? And in every step of the process, you say yes, and you say they deserve it. Not even because they've done something that's like, you know, this is the most brilliant scholars in prison, or these are the most thoughtful human beings. No, I mean, they deserve it because it says something about how we want people to be treated and seen in the world. And so, um, so at the end of the day, you know, you, you, we have actually seen it transform spaces um, and, and not to, you know, not to act as if it's like this truly existential moment for everybody, but it is uh, existential, a sort of transformative experience. I think for, for a lot of people, it creates the opportunity um, for, for like, you know, you, you read Ellie Paul's work too. I think it does create the opportunity um, for transformative experiences for so many people that's involved. And we put one in for the staff as well, you know, and, and, and I think the thing that's radical about that is we used to have this saying when, when, when the CEO's getting on our nerves, it's like, you're doing life too. You know, you're just doing it eight hours at a time. You know, where your cell phone at? You know what I mean? But if you want to reach your wife right now, how you going to do it? Um, you come in here with a plastic bag that has to be see-through because they don't trust you no more than they trust me. And, um, and, 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 you know, correctional officers have higher rate of alcoholism, higher rate of domestic violence, higher rate of stress than people in a lot of professions um, in this world. And so by bringing one in for them, too, um, you know, it's just radical. You get to see uh, just a moment. I've seen it. You just get to see a moment that, that they're saying, like, damn, you know, this is a bit of light in, in a dark place. And it's light in a dark place, not just for people that's doing time, it's light in a dark place people that works there and, and a really radical thing if it ever gets to this point is the kind of permissions that it gives you you know when you put a library in a housing unit i think it gives permission for the men there to see each other as more than just you know criminal convict spades player athlete um but to, but to see to see a person in public as a reader because you don't have wide access to the library um and then if you get to the place where the ceos get a chance actually to read and that's a part of the, the ethos and the structure of, of the day for them, then I think that they get to see themselves as something other than the jailer, you know, and, and the people doing time get to see the CEOs as something else. They get to publicly be seen as a reader. You know, it's only one CEO the whole time I, I served time that I saw as a reader. You know, he was the guy who, um, who worked at the door, uh, 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 you know, who, who worked at the door if you wanted to go to the law library. And he would have these books every day and they would be on his desk, but he would have them turned over as if it was like, as if it was like illicit material. And I would be like, what do you read? Why you don't want us to know? You must be reading one of them romance novels. 
<laughs> like, and, and I was, I was, I was a GED tutor at the time. So every time I came in, I would mess with him about his books. And, and he was, you know, he was kind of a hard ass and, and people disliked him because he took his job seriously and he would search you and, and he felt like he was responsible for making sure contraband wasn't passed back and forth. Um, and so people disliked him and I, I didn't care because I wasn't passing contraband and, and he had these books. And so I would just mess with him every single time. And, um, and then I got an opportunity to work in a law library, but he had to approve whoever was going to get hired because it was like, I, he was like, look, if I don't approve the person then they can't get hired, because I think that if you work in a law library, you got access to computers. Um, so you can make gambling tickets and things like that. And he was like, I just need to trust the person. I'm this young kid and me and him, my whole relationship had just been like me messing with him over these books. And then when I go up for the job, he okays me to get the job. And, and, and I know a lot of it had to do with just this back and forth that we had about me trying to discover what he was reading and him not telling me. And, and I, but I worked in a law library and that's how I learned how to do legal research. And I ended up going into law school. And so years and years later, I ended up going to Yale Law School. And so it's just this way in which I think everything is interconnected and, and, and it creates this space of beauty creates kind of opportunities that I couldn't even predict on the front end. Um, but I know will happen on the back end. So how many, books have you put into prison so far roughly how many libraries have you been able to 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 yeah, it, so it's actually been really radical because we started out the first time you and i talked i mean we were at uh we were part of yale law school and um and then we separated and now we are independent 501c3 and you know and it was i did it was like it was like all a dream um but but you know at this point, we've done 60 libraries um, uh, across seven states and 19 prisons. Um, later this month, we're doing, uh, and, you know, and I, I do say it's, a, it's an experience and it's, it's labor, right? When I say that um, we have these things called freedom ambassadors and the freedom ambassadors are like, you want to be able to come into a prison and not be a voyeur. So, for instance, um, we did 11 libraries at a women's prison in, in Connecticut. They got 11 housing units. We put a library on every housing unit. I mean, but that's 5,000 books and, and that's, you know, um, 33 bookshelves, right? And, and so this, you physically picking them up and taking them into a space and that's labor. And so we work in with the staff, different relationship, but if it's 5,000 books, that means there's hundreds of boxes and you open in boxes and you're taking the plastic out. And so when people come inside to support the work, sometimes um, they, they are our ambassadors, and, and you can't put books on the shelf without talking to the people around you. So a lot of times we end up getting in conversations with the staff. We get in conversations with the people inside. We tell them about the project. Um, but yeah, so at this point we've done 60 and, and like we're doing 18. It's, it's a two day stretch later this month. We'll do um, 18 in a men's prison um, in California. And then there's a women's prison across the street and we're doing five there. Um, we'll come back and do more at that women's prison, but over two day stretch, you know, we'd be putting in 23 libraries. Um, so so yeah, we we have gone from this thing being a dream and an idea to actually having states reach out to us and say, you know, how can we make this happen? Um, and it's the South. It's, we we're gonna be in North Dakota <laughs> in a few months. So um, you know, we've been to Colorado, we've been to Angola and Louisiana, um, and we and we hire people who just came home. You know, it's a couple guys who who working with Freedom Reach has been their first job, and 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 one of the most deeply moving things. You know, I did my. My solo show in Angola at the um they got they got a rodeo at Angola that they do every year and so they got this rodeo space and I did my solo theater piece there but what 
has been, you know, really interesting for me is like at Angola, one of our guys, um, this guy named James Washington, he did 25 years. He got locked up when he was 15. So he, he grew up in Angola. He just came home and, um, you know, we go there and he built them with his hands and, 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 and he started doing woodwork when he was in prison. And so we returned with these walnut, like these beautifully handcrafted walnut shelves. And I see him interacting with dudes that he's known, you know, for years. Um, it was deeply, deeply, deeply meaningful and powerful. And, and having him there, I think, um, just made me recognize that, you know, when you talk about that search of beauty and that want for beauty, um, it is persistent. And, and it's evident that it brings people joy um, when you see a circumstance like that, when you see somebody like him bringing them in, you just see this immediate connection. So, so yeah, we're really excited about the work. And I think we did 50 libraries last year. We'll do um, 150 this year. What's the total? Do you have a goal? Yeah, we have a goal. I mean, so the goal is really to saturate prisons, you know, and, and I think sometimes you don't understand. Say saturate? Saturate because like uh, you don't want to create more inequity. So if, uh, if people don't understand why we put them on housing units, we put them on housing units because a lot of prisons do have libraries, um, but the libraries are open from eight to five. And if you have a full time job, then you don't go to the library. And if you got a prison with like a thousand people in one library, it's impossible for all of those people to regularly go to the library anyway. Um, but more importantly, we think about this combination of books and beauty. And what does it mean to witness somebody being a reader? Because the, the readers go to the library. Um, but then even when you go to the library, will you get exposed to the idiot? You know, will you get exposed to the odyssey? Um, will you randomly pick up, you know, it's a great book, uh, A Gentleman in Moscow. You know, will you, will you, if you never heard of it, then how do you know about it? You know, so, so by us putting, curating this 500 book collection, I think we, we basically curating opportunities. And so each prison will have like between six housing units and 10 housing units. And so if we say that we want to saturate because we don't want to create more inequity, then we always try to put libraries on like 60% of the housing units, right? So that it could be a thing that people experience and not just some special thing for, for this group of prisoners who are working in the kitchen or for this group of prisoners who are taking college courses. It could be something that's democratic and it's for everybody. And so if you just take the number of state prisons, it's, it's 1,500 state prisons. And you multiply that out, you know, we talk about trying to build 10,000 libraries. Um, and, and so I, I do say, you know, we have a goal, the moonshot, is to make this a part of the lived experience of somebody who does time. You know, suffering is a part of the lived experience of somebody who does time. Um, but I do think books were my conduit to becoming a different person. Um, books were a conduit to me understanding myself better and understanding the world better. And so we want to make that opportunity um, present in anybody's experience of incarceration. And so, yeah, our moonshot goal is... Um, Sometimes I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm like, I don't even want to say it out loud, you know, because it's a, it's a significant cost. Um, it's a, it's a logistical nightmare. You know, I've, I've found myself now um, really deeply understanding woodworking in a way that I had no idea about it. You know, when I started a project, uh, understand like what it means to, to ship project product products from like from Connecticut to Colorado, from Connecticut to California, you know, and I, and I also understand something about um, what it means to try to build a labor force. Right. Um, and so if I articulate the, the big goal, it, it, it feels a little bit um, overwhelming, but the big goal is, is to do five, 10, 15,000 of these libraries because um, that becomes five, 10, 15,000 opportunities, not just for people in prison, to discover books and beauty, 
not just for people who work there to discover books and beauty, but um, but for us to make it more um, more porous. You know, the 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 these the the wall that separates um, prisoners from those on the outside becomes far more porous uh, with a project like this. And I think I think that's meaningful for for all of us. And and, and you know, even if you just have you, you hate to use yourself as an example, but like two, three, four, five, 20, 30 people get to have some of the experiences that I, I've had in this life, you know, both when I was in prison and since I've been home. Um, I think that it had been something of a, of a, of a, of a life well lived if, if I could be the, the, the vehicle for others to get to experience some of this stuff. Do you hear from people who are reading the books? Do you know if they're being read? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, I mean, so it's been occasions where, like, we send books out before they've been published. You know, um, Honoree Jeffers, uh, I think her, her book won the National Book Award, but um, the the love songs of W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, her publisher gave us, like, 30 copies, and we sent it to a, a group of guys in a prison in Texas, and they read it before it came out, and they wrote all these handwritten notes, you know, about the book. And um, but I, I once did a Zoom uh, with, with with women and with women in, in, a, in a different Texas Texas prison. I once did a Zoom when we first did the library. One of the first places we put one at it was a, it was a, 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 a segregated housing unit, right? Um, and it was for people who were in protective custody. And and when I started this, I, I wasn't actually even. I was thinking about myself, you know. So I was an NPC, um, and I spent a lot of time in a hole. But I was thinking about myself in general population. And then in collaborating with the DOC, you know, it was like, well, we need to put one in segregated housing. These guys never go to the library. They, they know and, and they, they live their lives in a cell, you know, um, because they're afraid or because they have and they have legitimate reasons to be afraid a lot of times. So um, so they set up a Zoom call with me and these guys. Right. And one of the dudes knew my name and he had read my book and he got to argue with me about like, why wasn't my book in the library? He'd be like, you know, this all mattered a whole lot more when I realized that you did it because you not know, read your book. It, it was kind of good too. <laughs> I was like, kind of good, <laughs> but but it was this guy. No, it was I'll never forget this man. It was this guy, this old white dude. He was like, and everybody. It was like an AA. You know, everybody introduced themselves and said how long they had been in prison. And I also thought that I did the project for for the kid that was like me. But what I found is the project has ultimately been for for the me who, if I was still in prison, you know, the, the people that I talk to the most about this work have been people who've been locked up for 20 years and 25 years. And this guy says, you know, I've been locked up for 27 years. And, and I don't know if you know this, but I'm Italian. And I was like, why would I know that? <laughs> you know? And um, he said, man, but I picked up this book, Barskins. He's like, you know, this novel, man, is about a town. It's just like the town where my family comes from. And he started telling me how he had been inside for so long that he had forgotten what home was. And because we had that book in the collection, he was, you know, saying that he reconnected with that space. And so, so it's been interesting, man, talking to people about it. Um, and we have some videos online. Uh, we got a newsletter. You can subscribe to the newsletter. We try to, you know, produce um, stories to give you a glimpse of, of what it means. Um, and, and it is, it's, it's always, um, it's always sort of humbling um, because people, when you go in and you, and you unbox the books, one of the things you hear is, I wonder if that book is there. And then, and then they were find it. Be like, oh man, I'm, I, I didn't think you was gonna have this with you know. And, and, and sometimes it's like I always wanted to read this, and and you know, five hundred books is, is something for everybody to discover that they'd never heard of. Um, but it's, I, I snuck Adam Smith in there. You know, we had talked about this before. Um, 
I snuck your book on Adam Smith in there, though. That's how that's how I snuck Adam Smith in there through your book, as opposed to like the actual Adam Smith book, because it's, it's really dense. But I, I think you know the thing is somebody's gonna pick that up, and and I just remember being introduced to the idea of what it means to be lovely, and so somebody will pick that up and get introduced to the idea, and it will literally I know carry them through a bunch of days. So so yeah, we got feedback, and the feedback has been has it have, I mean right now it's been consistently good, just because um you know. For better or worse, books are not grenades. Yeah. You know, um, I, I, I was preparing for this interview. Um, I just interviewed um, Tiffany Jenkins. You haven't heard it yet, Dwayne, because it hadn't come out yet, but I interviewed her yesterday. It's about the British Museum and other museums that have stuff from the past that they haven't returned, and, or excuse me, they're being pressured to return like the Elgin marbles from the Parthenon and many, many, many other things like it. And in the course of her book, there's a little history of, of museums and the desire to collect. And she tells a story in there. I didn't get to talk about it on air, so I'm cheating a little bit and I'm adding it here uh, about Hans uh, Sloan, whose collection becomes the British Museum. When he dies, this is guy who lived, I think, 1660 to 17-something. And he's a collector. He's a crazy collector. He's got 50,000 books and 17,000 pieces of something, and he collects everything. And he, for a while, his since the British Museum didn't exist and he was the collector, his house was the museum. And people would come to his house. And the composer, Handel, who wrote you know, The Messiah and other great works of music, Supposedly came to his house, but put a buttered muffin on top of one of the manuscripts <laughs> in his collection, mm-hmm. which he didn't like. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> and I'm reading that, I'm, or I've heard it from, I read it, I guess, and then I heard it uh, talking to Tiffany. We didn't get it in the episode, but, you know, I'm thinking I can relate to that because I think I've told the story before when I was, when I was, uh, seven years old, I threw a book, uh, tossed it across the room, and my dad gave me spanking. And um, I never threw a book again. And I've always thought of books as something sacred, as something that you don't put a butter muffin on and you don't throw them. And when you read them, you don't crack the spine and you treat them with um, deep, deep respect. And as I was thinking about talking to you about this, I'm thinking, why is it that you and me, and we're not alone, why do we think of books as so special, as so potentially transformative? It's part of the reason I'm president of a college that emphasizes actually reading books, that not just hearing about them in a lecture. You know, our students are in small seminars where they actually read the books. It's really a novel, pardon the pun, novel idea. And sure, books change your life and they, you know, They've changed mine, obviously. I don't think that's the reason. I, I think I think I have, and I suspect you do as well, something close to a religious attitude toward books that you know, they represent in many ways the highest form of human achievement, that, that we can speak and have language is extraordinary, that we can somehow communicate across Connecticut to Jerusalem is extraordinary, that we can preserve our thoughts and ideas with, with little black lines inside something you can hold in your hand, and you give that to someone, and it shakes them up or lifts their spirits 
or shows them a future they might have or teaches them about the human heart in conflict with itself, it's, a, it's magic. And, and so I have a radical um, view of books that your project you know, moves me deeply because I believe in it. It's not rational. Right to think that a person's going to pull a book off a shelf, read it before he goes to bed at night, and change. But I believe in it, and and I think it could be true. But I want to believe in it much more than than I have reason to believe in it. What what is that? And, and, yeah, and for me though, I, I like I, I like want to believe in it, and actually I want to believe in it independent of whether or not it's true. Like like it, it provides me solace the very notion that. You know, like I said, a book is not a grenade and, 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 and people would not argue about the kind of damage that a grenade could do, the kind of damage that a bullet could do um, or, or the kind of relief that those things might provide. If if you're dealing with like some, uh, you know, war, some some wars are legitimate. Right. But to believe that a book could have that same kind of weight. You know, could, could have that same kind of influence, could have that same kind of significance. And also, I just fundamentally think that, like, books say something about who is present in the world at a particular time. And, and I think it's our only way of remaining present in the world, even when we leave. And if we say that, you know, you're alive as long as somebody still is telling your story. Well, books are the way that um, that, that story gets told, you know, for perpetuity. You know, until the until the books disappear, the story is, is always there. So I actually feel like, you know, the the lasting footprint um, of civilization, you know, in some ways, is marked um, by the book as a kind of permanence. Um, and then also, I just think honestly, the the, the real reason why I've done all of these things in my life, you know, and it's, it's so strange that the most significant things in my life have come um, via the book, but those things haven't been predicted, you couldn't predict it from the beginning, you know? Um, like, that black poets comes into my life and I become a poet. You, you can't predict that. Or I'm looking for Sophie's world and I read Sophie's choice and it connects me to the heritage and the history of the very person that introduced me to Sophie's world. You know, I understood more about the Holocaust from reading Sophie's choice in a real way than I did from going to the museum. I mean, I understood something about the legacy the horror, the actual fact of it having occurred, but reading Sophie's Choice made me carry it around with me in my head, in my heart for a long time. And this, and Sophie's Choice, more than a museum, is why I remember that teaching. Right. Um, so I think that these books that they did, they, it, the first time I was out, I, I was on the front page of the Washington Post in 2006. It was because I started a book club for boys, you know, and and like the stuff that happened from my engagement and interaction with books. It hasn't been transactional. And I think that's what, you know, what we share. But I think anybody who loves books recognizes that their relationship with the books has never been transactional. But often it has provided these kind of um, of rewards that people carry with them, even if it's just like, even if you know, like, you like, you know, you're not obsessed with books the way um, some of us are. But but you remember that one book. You remember the time my, my kid comes up to me last night. And he's like, you know, can I ask you something that uh, I'm reading this book and, and, you know, we were going back and forth about like, yo, you know, come sit down and read with me and it's on a break. And he's like, I want to play Minecraft. And so he's having to come sit down and, and read with me. 
I'm reading the stand because my um my oldest son he loves the loves Stephen King and he likes the book the stand and he was like I want you to read this and it's like 1500 pages and I'm like I don't want to read this but um I'm reading it and I'm finding it fascinating and my youngest son is beside me reading this book and last night he says um can you give me part two of this book and and it's just that even just the 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 the, the fact that a book can give you a desire to go deeper into another world it's just something that doesn't exist in the same way um that anything else in this world um it's it's nothing else that that does it quite the same way i mean it's strange i mean i got this book this is like it's like the walk you know and it's a cookbook right but it's a it's a book it's an exploration into this person's life you know like the very idea of a book just um it's wild how satisfying it's wild how 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 people literally can build lives um around 300 pages and 400 pages. And I think it says something about, um, it is, it's, 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 it's in itself just a beautiful notion, you know, that you could build your whole life around trying to um, put words on a page and imagine somebody else would read it and in the reading um, experience a, a slice of your mind. I think it's something just um, irreducibly beautiful about that. Talked a little bit recently about communication when talking with Patrick House about consciousness and how we assume the person across the table is hearing the words that we're hearing because we're saying them and we know they can hear them, but they don't hear the same words. They don't conjure up the same images. Their mind is wandering and they're filtering it in a different way. And the the idea that you could write those words on paper and someone would actually understand them is miraculous <laughs> it is, and profoundly human. Again, there's nothing, I don't think this, you could argue there's really nothing more human than that. Um, it is our highest expression, our highest action, activity. Um, let's turn to your latest project, which is um, a book called Redaction. Uh, it's a collaboration with you and an artist uh, explain the collaboration, how it came about. Yeah, you know, it's, it's really interesting. So Titus Kafar is the artist I'm working with, and he lives in New Haven, too. And, um, and you know, we're friends. And, and I think that, um, you know, maybe in the back of our head, we always wanted to do something together. But how do you figure out the thing to do? And and particularly with, like, visual artists and poets, because always the, the challenge is, is the poetry going to be a substrate for the art, or would the art become a substrate for the poetry? And, um, and he was in Maine, at Bowdoin College and um, at a, a residency and he was messing around with printmaking and he, you know, called me up and said, Hey, won't y'all come to Maine, you know, take a vacation down here. I mean, you could go in the studio. And so we went and we started um, doing some work together and messing around with, you know, um, using silk screening and etching to combine the poetry and the art. And I was, I was doing these poems, these redacted poems, and they were really visually arresting. And so it was like, oh, this is perfect because the redaction poems, uh, they were based on these class action lawsuits where people were, were challenging um, Bill and, and challenging being locked up um, and, and, and held because they couldn't pay traffic tickets. They couldn't pay court fees or they couldn't pay low level um, bail. Right. And, um, and and these, you know, I was I was struggling with the fact that I was a lawyer or studying to become a lawyer. And, um, and I thought that these cases were compelling, but they were filled with legalese, you know, and it's a 50 page document and frequently it's not going to be decided on 
on the heart of the matter. It's going to be decided on some legal point, you know, some something that really felt like minutia. And so I was messing around with redaction. And I was like, well, what if we redacted to get to just the salient points? And we didn't redact to um, obscure what was in a text, but we redacted to reveal what was in a text. And so I started, you know, redacting these court documents and then working with things. was like, oh, what if I put the etchings of people behind that? You know, so it's almost like you get this doubling, you get the voice and the, and the image, but they're both pushing in the same direction. And in uh, the mugshot, is this classical, um, uh, the, you know, the reason why they do mugshots and, and driver's licenses, that picture in that way, because you get most of the face and, and you could really, you know, like, like as opposed to a side view or something like that. But we turned the mugshot into a stigma um, because when you see somebody, you say, that's a mugshot. And it was like, what if we did that, but we made it beautiful and we did these portraits of people and they wouldn't necessarily be the people that were involved in the case, but you could imagine it. And then he he doubled it. So so anyway, so we we do this project and, and me and him are just messing around and we go and we meet with Sarah Suzuki. At, at, um, she's a, a curator. She works at um, MoMA at the Museum of Modern Art. And we just go and meet with her because she was familiar with Titus' work and she knew Titus. And um, we just go to talk to her about the project. So this is, um, I guess it's like 2018, maybe. Um, I think it's like 2018, uh, yeah, 2018, 2019. It's 2019. So we go meet with her like January 2019. She said, oh, this would be great. But you know, um, our calendar for MoMA for exhibits is like two or three years down the line, but you could go to MoMA PS1 and we could do this. I mean, we could do this this year. Now, mind you, we just went to talk to her about the idea and we just had some testers that we had done. Uh, she says, um, so then she sets up a call with the person that runs MoMA um, PS1. And they're like, yo, we could do, we would love to have y'all be a part of this exhibit that we want to put up in March. I'm clerking for a federal judge in Pennsylvania and Philly, you know, um, and right now, this is just the idea in our head. This is not like anything finished. And now this is January. We got from January to March to find a printer who could do this, right? To find a master printer who could actually work with us to produce these things. And, um, and man, it was uh, like a three, four month period of my life that was wild. I mean, some days I would be, for, for hours each day, I would be in Connecticut, New York, and Philly, you know, just going back and forth. Um, but it came out and, and we did 50 prints. And typically, you know, you because each poem was about five to eight pages long. So we did a print for each poem and it sort of the process developed and we printed on black paper and it was beautiful. Um, but we did it and the exhibit was up and, and people came and it was it was great. But then we realized that this, you know, if you're not in New York and you never heard a moment PS1, you would never see this. And so we decided to do a book. And we wanted the book to be a, a object of beauty and, 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 and to be something that was also like, uh, so if you, and when you, when, when readers get it and, and they should get it, cause I think it's beautiful. Um, you know, me and Titus put some money into it to reduce the cost, uh, because we, it's three different kinds of paper in the book. Um, you could just print with four colors, but we printed with like seven or eight colors. Um, we printed on black paper and the redaction pieces, which were on black paper and, in the exhibit, we put it on black paper here but we also didn't put an image on two, on each side of the page. We wanted an image just to be on one page so that, um, you know, if you wanted to cut it out and put it on the wall, you basically got a mono print. We use cold glue. So the book opens up flat on each page. You don't have to worry about breaking the spine when you open it. You know, we use cold glue to facilitate like really enjoying a book. And, um, and then we use, uh, we, we got, you know, three sections that's retrospectives on his work and my work. And at first I was going to use all old poems. It was going to be poems from previous books. 
Um, but then I, you know, we got to working on the project and, and I was like, man, I, I, I like these new poems I'm writing. And so, um, and so now the book has all new poems from me, um, about 40, 50 poems. It has all the redaction pieces in it and it has a bunch of Titus's work in. And I, it's interesting that I'm really proud of it in, in a way because, um, like I, I said, um, you know, I, I was in a prison and I went into this prison and I had my four books. And when I read from the first three collections of poetry, you know, each each poem, it was hard for me to read. And I felt like like the poems weren't doing what I wanted them to do to an audience that read it. You know, it's, it's sort of like if a, a drowning man doesn't want to want to hear about the story of a drowning man necessarily, you know. And I got to the redaction poems and, and I could just feel the light lifting in the space because I, I knew that I had written these poems um, to have some joy in it. And it was my first time actually really as a writer. My wife tells me this a lot. It's like, you you know, you write about prison a lot, but what about writing about something that has some, some, some light in it. And, um, and this was my first time really pursuing it. And, and, and I wasn't even pursuing it to collect a, a book. I was just writing for a friend who was going through something and, and trying to write in that way, maybe pay attention to the world in a different way. And I remember just reading those poems in this prison and the and whole room changed, man. You, you can see it on people's faces. And by the end, they were like, well, where, where's our copy? You know, and, and I was reading from, it was not out yet. So I, I was like, I don't have copies for you guys yet. But I can't wait to actually, um, you know, we made it cloth bound so that it has, it has the feel of a hardback book. But, um, but it's not a hardback book because you can't get hardback books in prison. And so we did all of these like subtle things. And even in the book, um, you know, it was one of the pages. We considered a book the, the third exhibit of redaction. And, and, and which is just to say that, um, you know, when you hold it, it's like we like to believe that holding it is a combination of going to a poetry reading and going to a museum. And even the poems, I hung the poems on a page um, without titles um, in the same way that you hang art on the wall so that um, it becomes a, a running commentary. But you experience the poem in, in a different way, I think, than you typically would experience the poem. Uh, I'd like you to read one of them. Um you have a poem that's first line is we waited without a name. Now I think, I think Dwayne, I might be wrong. When you read a poem on your first appearance here, you're the, we were, I think it was your first appearance. We talked about Fallon, which was a, a poetry collection of yours. And it's, it's dark uh, as you were saying. And these, these poems in this new collection, ironically, perhaps or the redaction poems are, are dark, obviously they're 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 um, a little bit harrowing. They're 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 poignant. They're powerful, uh, but they're mixed in with these new, uh, not redacted, but full palms of yours. Um, but I think when you read the first one, I think you read it from memory, and I think you changed it a yeah. little bit. And it and Dana Joya, the poet who was on here, also changed when he read one of his palms. He read it so. I don't know if you're going to read, which which I love, by the way. It's one of my favorite moments of, of hosting the show is to have a poet write a poem on the show, essentially. Read it just a little bit differently than how he wrote it as a, as a unique moment. But um, So I don't know if you're going to read We Waited Without a Name by Heart or whether you're going to read it off a, off a text, but uh, I'll take it either way. All right, cool. Let's see what I can do. Um, we waited without a name for your wonder. And after your birth, after you entered this world wailing like the dragons, 
Your tiny hands reaching for light at the jumbo jets hour. We waited. And three days passed without words to announce this gift. And I read poems to myself and didn't think of the compass I'd give you years later or the compass you become for me in that afternoon. For the first time, I was not lost. Just discovering a story to tell myself about the world. Aren't we always looking for a story to tell ourselves? Isn't a name just a shorthand for a myth? We gave you two words. A word in each tongue. The English, a translation for the Hebrew or vice versa. Each, the name of the uncle you'll never meet. The names pulled from the book. Some wonder. When I held you, your little body was neither well nor how, but so fragile and unafraid of these shivering hands or the warm water that I bathed you with. The light that spilled from your mother's belly, patient and smiling then, as if you knew you were the first song to find me worthy. That's just so beautiful. Um, I had nothing to say. I was going to ask you about names, but forget it. I'm not going to ask you about names. Did, did you read that? Did you just recite that from heart by heart? Uh, it's, it's, it's actually in my show. So it's like 50 50. Yeah. You're saying, because we, we did not give anybody the background on that. You did a solo show, and you're saying in that solo show, you would, this was one of the things you recited. So, yeah, so I know that one. You know that one pretty well. It's, it's, interesting. it's interesting, too, though, because like before I did my solo show, so I did a solo show based on like my life in the book Felon. And the reason why I did it is, is, is also I recognize that like literacy moves up and down. And, you know, I want to go into a prison and do the show. And, 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 and entice people for what they will get from inside of a book, right? And being a poet, you know, my folks would be like, yo, you, you're a poet, say a poem. And for years, I, I couldn't. If I didn't have my book, I, I couldn't give you a poem. And so part of doing a solo show was, was to try to stretch as an artist. And that's been fascinating too, but that's one of the poems that's, that's in the show. Um, and so that's, that's one of the reasons. I mean, this, the, the reason why I was able to do the poem by heart the first time and this time is because you know, trying to become and becoming a performer has made me like value the art of memorization yeah. in a way that I hadn't before. So now I know everybody's work, you know, I, I like everything. I like the Ethers Night poems. I, I know those by heart. I know. So anyway, it's, it's been a, a radical transformation in how I, I'm mad that, that I wasn't made to learn things by heart when I was a kid, you know, just that just like, it should have been a fundamental part of, of education. I, I remember nothing from, from seventh grade. If they would have just made me memorize Shakespeare, at least I would remember that. You know, it's just this thing of, of we imagine people, you know, I, we imagine the things that we force people to learn will, will, will be carried with them for the rest of their lives. And often it's not. And then things that they would carry with them, it's like it's too much work, though. You know, it's, it's too difficult to make you spend a lot of time on one book. You know, let's, let's just do. Hey, I, I, I swear we read. Um, we, we read. Uh, we read um, Julius Caesar. In like three weeks, in a tenth grade, it's like what kind of absurdity is that? Like you know, we would have got 
I really got more out of just reading 20 lines for three weeks as opposed to like, like being forced to cram all of Julius Caesar into like a three week period. Um, it, it, it was just as a, as a 10th grader, as somebody who was completely unfamiliar with a text that's basically in another language, completely unfamiliar with the history. And so anyway, yeah, I, I read that mostly by heart. I've mentioned my eighth grade teacher, Miss Kinnean, on here before. I'll mention her again that she made us read Ulysses by heart. Uh, I'm not sure she made everybody learn it, but maybe she gave it as an option. And I did that. It's a long poem. It's not super, super long, but it's, I don't know, I'm going to guess it's 60 lines, something like that. And I wish I knew it all by heart still. I know a chunk of it. I know the opening and I know the ending, which are the best parts, I just want to say. But uh, I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful, you know, for all the poems my dad read to me often enough that I know chunks of them by heart. Um, and I, my kids all know stopping by snow on a stopping by woods in a snowy evening. I think I have that right. I can't remember the title, but I can read the poem, <laughs> the frost poem. And, yeah, and they, yeah, yeah. they all know it by heart too. Um, still as, as, as adults, it's, um, it is a sweet gift that's undervalued. I encourage all parents out there, and it, it's great to read your your poems more complex, but you know poems that rhyme like "Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening" or um, Kipling. Uh, my kids know a lot of Kipling by heart because he's so memorable. Literally, he's easy to remember. He's got a great rhythm, and he's they know some Robert Service by heart. It would fall in that category also. So I encourage all parents listening there to to read poems to your kids often uh and i'd include winnie the pooh in there and and uh when we were six and not winnie the pooh when we were six the aml poems are um and and like when like where the sidewalk ends yeah you know like i mean literally like yeah i i I learned that's the first poem i learned by heart years and years ago and i I still know it you know it could be pickle me tickle me too um so actually, I think it's fascinating just the, the idea of, you know, the memorization part. It almost creates a, a geographical um, connection oh, yeah. to the work and a historical connection to the work for you in, in a way that, you know, reading reading book does, too. But if you if 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 you know about heart, you can carry it around with you wherever you are. You know? Well, my it's funny. I knew most of the poems I mentioned, say, The Ballad of East and West by Kepler, my dad taught to me and. um Certainly, the frost off my woods on a snowy evening, and yet those poems are in my children's beds. Is where I know them from because I read them to them, and uh, that's where they'll always be. And Ulysses will always be in Miss Kinnean's eighth grade class. <laughs> uh, so, just the way it is. Uh, let's close with one more, if you would. Um, I don't know if you know this one by heart, but uh, This Brother is Dancing in the City, which is another beautiful, beautiful poem he wrote for this new book. Actually, I know I don't know this one by heart, but it's funny. I wrote this on on my birthday um, last, I think like last year, um, after Michael K. Williams had passed. And um, it was interesting is, um, you know, I didn't know that, um, I forgot I wrote the poem. I just like I literally had forgot that I wrote the poem, and um, and then I realized, um, and I and I so I wrote it in November, and 
and I and I was asked to um, write a piece about Michael K. Williams for the New York Times for the Lives They Lived issue, and I, I, I wrote the poem. I wrote the piece, and I ended with him dancing. It was a viral video. I, I hadn't known that he was a dancer, you know, and it was this viral video that I came out of him dancing, and which is really fascinating because uh, he's in like a park in Brooklyn, and he got on this really colorful garb, and uh, and this is like so much joy on his face and he's dancing um, and everybody's like clapping and, and house music is playing. And, um, and I saw this video, this viral video before he had died. And I actually had a chance to meet him a little bit before that. And um, we were talking about democracy and voting in our lives. And, and he was just this really, um, to me, this really humble, humble dude. And the person that sort of helped set up the conversation, he was just, you know, I know he was a bit older than her, but he was like, man, and he was really, really respectful. And um, it's on my birthday, it was like late at night, and I just wrote this in a, in a rush, you know, and completely forgot about it. And we were in the last stages of the book. And, and so then I wrote the piece, and I completely forgot about the poem. But when I wrote the piece, I ended with an image that's in the poem. I was like, damn, that's a good image. That, damn, this is a good image, you know? <laughs> and, then, and then, no, and then we're working on a book. And it was like months later when I remembered the poem. And so I was like, you know what? I'm a, I want to publish this poem. So this is it. Um, before you read it, I, brother, him, before you read it, I don't, forgive me. I don't know who Michael K. Williams was. So tell me. Oh, Michael. But I know you've seen The Wire though, right? Yeah, I have. So he, he played, he played, he played Omar. Oh, whoa. Yeah. And, and, and he played Omar. And, and how did he die? And it's, it's actually interesting. That was part of the argument in the, um, that I had with my editor. So he he um, he died of a drug overdose okay. and um, during the pandemic. And um, and when I was writing a piece about him, you know, I remember the the some of the I had back and forth with my editors. They was like, "Well, you know, you got to say how he died in your piece." And I was like, "I don't think I have to." And he was like, "No, you you do because." And I was like, "But I but I wrote about you know Bill Withers, and I don't even know how he died." And I was like, "And I wrote about Inazaki Shange." I was like, let me just check the website. And I went to the website and I looked at a bunch of old, the lives they live pieces. And I was like, yeah, frequently people don't say how people die. And he was like, and, and I was like, look, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about, uh, the last memory that I write about this, this, this brother is not going to be that he died of an overdose. And, 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 um, and, the, and the last image ended up being about him dancing because I, I do think, you know, I mean, when you write something, you get a chance to, to, to argue about what matters. And, and it's not erasing history. It's like making a case for the thing that you want to persist. And, and it was interesting that like, it's on, on, and you know, I called the poem on, on my 30, 41st birthday that, you know, I'm closing my night out and it was the image of him that, that I thought, um, that I thought to write about. So, but yeah, Michael K. Williams, he played, um, he played Omar in the wire. He played, you know, a bunch of iconic characters and, um, it just was really a, a, a fascinating human being who, um, you know, he wanted to be an actor and he was, and he was a dancer and he was choreographing. Um, and then he got in a fight and he helped a friend in a club and they got in a tussle and somebody like sliced his face open. Right. And he almost died. But, you know, it was the thing that in some sense, um, changed the whole trajectory of his career, you know, and it got this sort of, um, people became, it made him distinct in a different way that carried him through his work, but he was never, but what was beautiful about it, I think was that, you know, on a screen, 
um, does God allow them to be gentle in an unexpected way? You know, even though people people would see the scar and expect to, to be confronting somebody that was menacing, um, but I think it allowed him to be gentle in 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 an in in unexpected way, in a deeply moving way. So, anyway, um, that's who the poem is is, is for. It's for Michael K. Williams um, on my forty first birthday. This brother, I should say this too, right? I did this whole thing where um, well, this has nothing to do with the poem, but I did this whole thing where I learned how to do the dance that he was doing. I can't dance, you know. I hired somebody and I, I did lessons and I even brought my son to the lessons, you know. And um and the reason why I wanted to do it is because I was I knew I was gonna write about it, but it's like what does it mean to be actually alive in the world? What does it mean to walk in somebody's shoes? And and, and actually what does it mean to find different opportunities um to give yourself over to possibility? And and I think that's what books are essentially is an opportunity that we take each time we pick up a book to give ourselves over to, to, to something that's deeply, deeply and meaningfully unexpected, you know, um, experience that you can't predict before having read the book. Um, and I think it's, this is maybe, um, Ellie Paul may argue with me, but I think it's one of the quintessential transformative experiences. You know, um, I don't care what you, you told me about Ulysses. I'm gonna go back and read it, but it's nothing that you told me that could prepare me for what, I'm going to read and the experience I had when I read it. I'm going to read it to my kid tonight just because of this conversation, but I have no idea how it's going to play out. I don't know how I'll be moved or, or they'll be moved. Um, all right. So on my 41st birthday for Michael K. Williams, this brother is dancing in the city. His bald head, the only son some of us will see on this winter day, his body draped in the colors of heaven and each limb living in every burrow at once. How I wanted to be free. When I tell my son about this brother and his feet moving and how a scar from his forehead to his lip was not nearly the most interesting thing about him, I think of his feet and wonder how to be this kind of honest and written in a moment everything that matters. I want to be somebody's child again, young enough to stand before a mirror and learn moves that I believe will save me. Maybe nothing saves us except being a witness to someone else moving so free. My guest today has been Dwayne Betts. Dwayne, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. It's my pleasure. Always. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.